Welcome to today's uh, podcast. Uh, this is essentially an extension of our diversity and inclusion workshop. Uh, it's part of Windsor Leadership's Leadership uh, Academy series of events. And today I'm welcoming uh, Sarah Hobbs and Ollie Lewington. I was born with cystic fibrosis. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 18 months old, which was fairly common in 1982. And what was also fairly common in 1982 was the fact that people with cystic fibrosis didn't live beyond the age of three or four, which is what my parents were told when I was born. And I survived to three. I My doctor said I'd probably live till I was five or six. I got to six. They said I probably wouldn't live till I was ten. They got, I, I got to 10, they said I probably wouldn't live till I was 13. I got to 13 and they gave up guessing. Uh, but there was always this understanding that my life was going to be limited and probably shortened by this condition. The, uh, the long and the short of my cystic fibrosis journey is that by the time I was 25, I was knocking on death's door. And that's the point at which I was lucky enough to receive a, a life-saving and life-transforming double lung transplant. And so I've had this kind of before and after scenario of the world of work. So I've had, I went through, what would that have been, maybe four or five years maybe a little bit more uh, in the world of work as someone very disabled who struggled to do certain things and needed a degree of adaptation. And I had this after of being much fitter, much healthier, able to do a job now uh, for the Cystic Fibrosis Trust that I would never have been able to do before my transplant. And those, those two experiences, I think, give me certain qualities as a leader that help me to recognise the importance of understanding people's personal situations to lead a team at its most effective uh, level and it's really important to to recognize that all of these personal experiences we all have these personal experiences that make us who we are and part of the skill of being a leader is understanding where people may be coming from and that's where diving into diversity and inclusion in the workplace is a really important thing for a leader to do because had I not been lucky enough to receive a transplant, I, I well, first of all, I'd have died. Um, but before that, I would have still struggled to hold any sort of a job because you need sympathetic and empathetic leaders to support the work that you do. For me, again, you know, this is the third time I've heard it. And there were, mo there were moments in that story where you go, oh, my gosh, you know, these are things I haven't ever had to encounter, you know, to be told that you were going to live until you were three and then you were 10 and then you were, you were an adult now, for the most part. Just about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also, when we explore the conversation further, some of the challenges of being at work, um, some things that we all I learned when I, I originally met you and had that conversation but the room who just sat back and went didn't know that absolutely didn't know that and you, you know us planning that day you know somebody with cystic fibrosis we couldn't have them there in the room we wouldn't have even thought about something like that and I'm sure we'll unpack that so that's absolutely perfect thank you and and Sarah if you wouldn't mind sharing your story for this um, so I've spent most of my life living with being transgender and I guess most of that time it's really been a struggle against myself um, because for most of my life it was a um, something that I didn't particularly want um, and I spent a lot of time trying to work out how to hide it, how to suppress it, how to not have it as being part of who I am as a person. Um, I'd realised very young 
um, that I that I felt like this. That I was I didn't have the language to know that I was transgender, but I did know that I was incredibly uncomfortable with my gender. I remember I still remember the day when I was six when I realised. Um, I remember thinking two things that day. I remember realising that I had I was really confused about my gender, and I also remember very clearly thinking that day I can't tell anyone this I've got to keep this secret and really for the next kind of 20 odd years of my life um, maybe even a little bit more um, that's the reality that I lived with I could not tell anyone this I think as I got a little bit older um, I kind of I couldn't not tell I needed to kind of um, share with other people how I was feeling Um, and actually the first probably dozen people at least that I kind of came out to the response was kind of what I expected, really. It was a, well, this is a really bad thing. Let's try and work out how we can help you stop being like this, um, was kind of my experience. And so pretty much over that period of time, I did everything I possibly could to avoid um, being transgender. So I went for counselling. I went to every kind of faith solution I could kind of find. I did everything I could to, to stop being like this. And I think, you know, work was quite hard at that point because I could not bring my whole self to work. I, I I, was really careful about everything I said. There wasn't a word that passed my lips I didn't think about and didn't think about the implications of, of what I was saying and whether someone would guess my secret um, by, me, by me telling them. And I'd had a really successful kind of time by being a kind of a normal um, non-transgender person, not normal, but non-transgender person, um, I realised that um, I got on very well in terms of my career. I rose up the corporate ladder. I got into head of positions, um, was a senior manager. I headed up a consultancy. I've done all sorts of really interesting roles. I, I married. I had kids. Um, but all those things, it was kind of a. It was almost all of those things were a battle against how I felt inside. Um, and I think I got to the point probably in my early thirties where I realised that I could not live with this any longer and that I kind of needed to to think about how I was going to deal with it and so um, I told someone who um, kind of for the first time in years and they basically said and it's kind of one of the most moving points I think in my life because they it was the first person I ever met who told me that it was okay to be trans that um, that they loved me even more because of um, my transgender um, nature, status, whatever you want to want to call it. And I just never thought that was going to ever be possible. Um, right through to friends, other friends I told, one of my really good friends said um, that I was now the most interesting person they'd <laughs> ever met, um, which was um, very flattering. <laughs> I'm not sure that was true, but um, through to other friends who even at that stage were still saying, oh, can you imagine how that person's going to react if you told them? So there was still this kind of really difficult kind of situation. Of some people were happy, some people weren't. But over time, the gender dysphoria I feel, so the kind of the conflict between how I look on the outside and how I feel in what's going on in my head, just grew and grew and grew. And almost to the point where I could have almost panic attacks and feel really deeply uncomfortable with with myself. And so kind of, it was so difficult. Um, And so I arrived at the point really where I had just two options. What do I do? Do I continue to resist this continue to live a double life or do I transition Um, and I knew that I knew in myself that I could not continue to live how I was living and I needed to do something about it Um, and so I decided to transition that was quite a really tough decision and I think it's worth people kind of really understanding the implications of that because for a lot of trans people in making that decision you lose family you lose friends you can I know people have lost jobs um you know all sorts of kind of repercussions and so in going into it I was worried that my kids would desert me that um, I work as a consultant um, and I worried that my clients would kind of go actually that's too difficult to um to engage with you um and so just didn't know know what was going to happen um and so um starting that process off and starting to speak to one of my 20 30 clients that I work with you know normal normally trans people have like normally one employer they come out to um, I had lots and lots and lots of people I needed to go through that conversation over and over again I spent most of the year a couple of years ago I'm um, traveling to see clients to tell them um, what I was planning to do and I guess after the first couple though I had 
the most amazing reactions, just such supportive um, reactions. And I started to believe at that point, maybe, maybe this is possible. Maybe actually this is going to be okay. So, um, so once they'd kind of, once people had started agreeing and been being fantastic, I then started that transition process off. Um, and it's been, to be fair, since then. So it was around July 9, uh, 2017 that I changed my name. In a month later, I told my kids. Um, and they were the kind of final people I hadn't told. I told all the work people, everyone else knew. So in July 2017, I changed my name. In in August 2018, um, the final kind of hurdle needed to be overcome and I needed to tell my children. And, you know, all the other stuff had been really difficult at that stage. You know, coming out to people at work and hoping that the business would survive and all that kind of stuff. And I got through all of that. But the one thing that scared me the most was that I had to tell my children and... I didn't know that they weren't going to just say, actually, this is horrible, I don't want anything to do with you. And I was terrified, literally terrified. We went on holiday. Um, I told them the day we got back from holiday because I wanted to have one last holiday with them that I might enjoy in the uh, in the knowledge that I may never have that again. Um, and so I told them, and their reaction, to be fair, completely and utterly blew me away. I was shocked by how amazing they were. Um, all three of I have three boys, all teenagers, um, and they had the most amazingly supportive reaction. Um, and actually, interestingly, during that that conversation with them, um, I literally burst into tears um, because I was so relieved um, that they weren't going to disown me. Um, and ironically, that was the thing they remembered after the conversation. Mm. <laughs> they were so comfortable <laughs> with me being trans, but like, we've never seen you cry before. This is a really strange, um, strange thing. Um, so it was it was incredible and I think that just gave me all of those things kind of together gave me the confidence that actually this is going to be okay um, and so I'd done lots of stuff before I transitioned but I think what was interesting for me is by the time I did it boiled down to two things that I had not done which from a work perspective were the most challenging things to do one of which was to go and do some business development in the hope that um, people would still who'd never met me before would not think oh there's too much baggage with that we're not going to we're not going to engage and the second thing was to run a training course um given that's my bread and butter um those two things were quite scary um and so within the first couple of weeks i went from naught to 60 i was you know kind of living as male one day the next day i had to present to the world as a professional polished female and credit in a credible position and all that type of stuff um but also during those those early weeks um, I went to a conference um, where we were we had a um, exhibition stand and I was surrounded by 400 people. <laughs> um, I was hoping for a kind of a simple one-to-one -one sales process and 400 people was was kind of what I got. Um, I then ran the week after I ran a training program for one of our clients and it was quite terrifying. I, I hoped for kind of a nice little group or something like that. I had um, 80 um, graduates and apprentices to present to um, and knowing that I had to kind of introduce myself in my new kind of guise was just <laughs> scary. Um, and actually, that was the most difficult part in the end, as it turned out. Um, you kind of think, I must be about to be this really, really different person. And actually, in reality, um, after the first couple of minutes, got over my, my explanation of who I was, where I was on my journey, the old trainer in me kind of kicked in, and I just, I got on with it. And I think that's one of the other things that's kind of worth people knowing about I think is that actually you don't you don't suddenly become this kind of strange and different person by being trans just normal people mm. um, and actually it's kind of you know you just treating people in a very normal way in a very natural way um, is is absolutely kind of the way the way to go um, and I think you know over the over the time you know depending on the day you catch me um, there are days when I'm you know two years down the track when I'm happy and confident there are other days when imposter syndrome is absolutely kind of rife and I'm I'm thinking you're fooling no one um, this is kind of you know you're you know you're not who you pretend to be and you have those days as well and so I think kind of helping to build up people's confidence and, and give them that kind of support is you know is really helpful I've been through as you'd expect through things like you know hormone treatment laser treatment I had to relearn to walk and learn new mannerisms and you know I'm still as you can tell from this podcast still working my voice it's one of my um Achilles heels um 
but actually it's kind of all that stuff is is still in place but you still sometimes feel like actually um you know people must just know immediately um, and so you're living with that kind of constantly. So offering people support around making them feel confident and good about themselves is incredibly um, helpful. Mm, I hate you both because I think <coughs> there are moments that I wanted to cry, but I'm not going to. Uh, can I jump in with a couple of uh, yeah, a couple of yeah. additional and, bits and to my do story? Do ignore me. There is a fly that keeps going around my mic in my eye, but I think we've got him. So. Um, yeah, I just wanted to expand slightly on a couple of moments. Sarah's story just reminded me, but... There were, I can remember two really key parts of my journey through transplant. The first being the conversation that you have to have around the fact that you need a transplant because when you live with a condition like cystic fibrosis, you know that transplant is going to be a thing that comes up. And you know that at the point it comes up, that means you're not in a great position. And I remember really vividly the day on the hospital ward when I was in on an admission, I knew that my health had been going up and down, but all of the downs were getting further down and none of the ups were getting quite as high as they were before. And I said to my... Uh, specialist nurse when she came around to see me on the ward I think it's time we have a conversation about transplant and without any hesitation she just turned around to me and said yes I think we probably should and went and got me a load of different transplant materials and sat down with me for probably an hour and a half to talk through everything and in the course of that it was either that discussion or it was in the next couple of days I learned that the standard criteria for transplant were that you had to have a life expectancy of less than two years. And that's a pretty rough thing to be to, to discover that actually your doctors and your nurses and your care team think you've only got a couple of years left to live. And then when you get to a point that I was at immediately before my transplant um, I saw my my aunt and uncle who live over in Luxembourg with a couple of my cousins um, it was probably three or four weeks before my transplant and I learnt subsequently that they went home and said to their children my cousins if you want to see him again you need to go before Christmas and I had absolutely no idea. Um, but I definitely knew that it would be my last Christmas if, if I got that far. And one of the things I struggled with most, or I, I, tried, to, I tried to get across to my family, and, and I think failed for, for understandable reasons, was that I, I was really comfortable with the idea of dying and particularly comfortable with the idea of dying in the process of my transplant. There, there's lots of people who, who are fearful of that moment of having a transplant and, and what can go wrong with it and everything else. And I, I said to my parents numerous times, and to my brother and to our uh, immediate families, I said numerous times, the best outcome for me, if I'm not going to survive, is to die on the table. Because actually, all that means is I get put to sleep. All I'm going to know is that sensation that you get with the general anaesthetic where everything goes black. And then whatever comes next, that, that's a philosophical and religious <laughs> argument for another time. <laughs> but to all intents and purposes, I would just fall asleep. And that was the best outcome for me. And I think what's important about listening to stories like my story, listening to stories like Sarah's story, 
listening to stories from everyone with uh, disabilities, with uh, any kind of dysphoria, any kind of um, racial challenges uh, in the workplace or outside the workplace, people face these things every single day and they don't go away. Sarah was talking about how that sense of imposter syndrome and that sense of being seen as different comes, it rears its head again and again. And the same is true for everybody who faces challenges in their lives. They rear their head again and again and again. And for a lot of the things that we deal with, everyone in everyday life they don't go away and I think one of the things I've been saying to you Ashley previously is uh, whether or not you want to bleep this we <laughs> everybody has their shit to deal with and we have everybody's shit to deal with and then a ton of extra shit on top and that's why it's really important to understand where someone's coming from. That's why, actually, it's really important for people to bring their whole selves to work and for the workplace to accept people's whole selves when they come. Yeah. And that's a really key thing to me about building inclusive and diverse workplaces. We ran a diversity workshop in May um, and working with both of you, which was brilliant to come and meet you and we spent some time together and we began, well, I began to understand a lot more about, you know, you, uh, you as a leader and obviously you've done a Windsor Leadership Programme, but the Diversity Day was for, for us, it was to inform those who had done our programme that there was a lot more to just sharing and learning with like-minded peers there's a specific area and diversity inclusion is the most important thing personally i feel at the moment for a leader um and today's all about really developing those conversations and some of the themes that came out during your conversations i mean so really the first thing for me was to say well as a speaker how how did it come across for you how was the day what sort of things came out from your conversations with people that you met it was a real kind of uplifting experience. I think the quality of the leaders who were there and the their openness and their willingness to kind of listen to our stories and um, start to kind of change their thinking and their approaches in hearing that was so kind of encouraging because sometimes you feel like people are very fixed in their opinions. Mm. And so just being in a place where people were open and welcoming, embracing new ideas was fantastic. Um, I think people, what people asked was really kind of um, from a number of different directions. So there was some people who had some very practical questions um, about how they should address people in my case or, um, or talk to people, what kind of things they could and couldn't talk about. Um, right through to people who were just, um, I think, were just kind of drawn in by the story, I think, really. And so we're asking more specific questions about different areas of experience, life, etc., yeah, and I completely agree, because you could see people being drawn in um, during that time, and you, you had a few tears, which was really moving. And, and again, the feedback, which I said earlier that we'll, we're yet to share, the strongest feedback was for both of you, because it wasn't just the lived experience, it was the, the honesty and the story, and the way you told that story. Um, and people sat there for the first time going, I wouldn't have believed it otherwise. Uh, well, I got a sense of that. And I think that lack of belief is a really important part of that workshop and doing more workshops like it because actually people don't believe the difference that an understanding boss can make, that an understanding leader can make within an organisation That unless you have people that are willing to tell their stories. And... I should emphasise the fact that Sarah and I are not the only people willing to talk about things, mm, no. but unless you have those people, unless people are willing to speak up and to talk about their personal experiences, we can't expect leaders 
to learn and develop and understand the challenges that that people face. Mm-hmm. And I think to build on that, I think sometimes when you meet people, they are almost apologetic that they don't already have that kind of understanding. And actually, if no one's ever, they've never met anyone who's, who's in my case, trans, how would they expect to have that information? So actually kind of go easy on yourself, you mm-hmm. know, relax about it. But actually, if you can and you are interested, take the time and the effort to get to know someone mm-hmm. who is in that situation because actually their story will amplify the issues and really help you understand that very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, it, it goes back to the conversation that we had before the workshop, Ashley, where we were we were saying that it it is important for people to feel that they can ask questions. Yeah. And actually, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the time, no one is going to be offended by being asked a sensible and sensitive question. Mm. We we want to help people understand how to support people with disabilities, uh, people trans people, uh, people of colour. We want to make sure that there are the right supports in place to make sure that everybody feels included mm-hmm. within a work. A workplace mm-hmm. is how do we get managers because even I get pulled up on when I've got my pronouns at the bottom of my signature that drives me crazy because it's like I am in support and letting people know who I'm emailing do, what, what um, do we do so there are two things I think from my perspective one is kind of more general so I think there's something about your attitude and your approach and your openness so actually if you are as you're meeting people, as you're kind of um, you're, you're building relationships in your organisation with your networks, I think there's something about being the kind of person who is open, who is not phased by by people in whatever they kind of bring. Because it's not just about the kind of these characteristics that we're kind of talking about today. It's all sorts of things. Whether people have got kind of tattoos or they've got kind of piercings or or kind of whatever it is, it's that. For me, it's that general attitude of openness and being willing to be kind, be interested. I think most people, you know, there are, I think in my case, there are kind of trans people out there who would be horrified, actually, if if they thought you'd realise they were because actually they're trying to live their life with no one kind of realising. But I think if you've, if you've noticed or if you've, you're kind of, you know, there's an opportunity that kind of presents itself where you have an opportunity to have a, have a conversation with someone that general attitude of kind of openness is is you know is enough really because actually if you're going into it with a curious attitude you're not you've not got an axe to grind you're not trying to be offensive um you're you're willing to be corrected you're willing for someone to say actually that's not quite how i do it and you're you're kind of humble enough and gentle enough to kind of respond to that then actually i don't think anyone would have any kind of issue with it where a lot of the kind of social media stuff is actually driven that's quite bad is that actually people aren't coming with that attitude. Mm. They're coming with the attitude that says, actually, that person's different. I'm going to find work out how to tear them down as a result of, of those those differences. Mm-hmm. And I think for the majority of the managers, they probably, and leaders out there, they have that kind of, that's more, they, their attitude is more of that kind of gentleness. So I think that's kind of on one level. But then I think also, in the same way as you've done, and I love your attitude, um, Ashley, towards all this, that actually there's a, a curiosity to actually then find out the specifics. So the moment you do cross paths with someone with cystic fibrosis, someone who's transgender, you're, there's that curiosity to say, actually, I want to understand, I want to find out. And I think, you know, we're really willing to help people. Most people in our situations are willing to help people when, when that comes out. So I think have that right attitude to start with, but then also where, you, where those opportunities cross your path, you know, if you possibly can, if it's if the situation arises, take advantage of that situation. And, and, and likewise, and thank you for that. And because you are also very measured, um, you don't get angry when you talk about yeah. this thing, and you can easily get angry with this whole subject. Yeah. And um, just just this morning, talking to my daughter, you know, what are you doing? I'm podcasting, and these are two people I'm meeting, and we talk about cystic fibrosis, and when I talked about transgender. Do you know what it is? And she knew all about it. I'm delighted with that. But then we started to talk about certain areas of it. And I said, well, that you, you can do and ask, and maybe you shouldn't ask that. And also, and, and I was delighted um, to hear that in a seven, eight-year-old, um, just about to turn eight, in the questions they were asking. And so it gave me a bit of hope and you know, promise for the future. But I know they're from a very diverse school. 
but then, and I'm sort of going off at a slight tangent, but there are segments of leadership and management where they are closed, and we know that. Yeah. There are certain sectors, certain workplaces where all of this would be, pff, and then all the bravado, all the alpha male comes out, all the, you know, the stereotypes, judgments. But how do we deal with that? Because we're actually in a good place, and being part of Windsor is a safe place. But have you come uh, across people like this who you just, they're not listening, they're not willing to listen, they're not willing to accept who you are? I think there's a, there's a really important point for me about the recognising the people that you're not going to win over. And there's a really important element of this for me about recognising that there are certain people you just won't win over and they're not the people to start with so i campaign frequently to try to get people to sign up to the organ donor register because it was someone doing that that means that i'm still here now there are lots of people in the country who believe in organ donation and there are slightly fewer people who say that they would agree to donate their organs. And then there is a very small percentage who say they just, they, they just don't believe in organ donation for whatever reason. They're just not interested. The target group for me there is the people who believe in the idea of organ donation but just haven't taken the action to sign the organ donor register. They're the people you start with. Because actually, getting the people up to the, the level that you can, so getting people to understand disability or trans issues or BAME issues, is something that you never you're never going to capture everyone. We, as a group of people, as, as leadership alumni or people considering joining uh, Windsor Leadership, we, uh, we win by going after the people who want to understand diversity and inclusion. And we work with them to increase their understanding, to increase their comfort level in asking questions and approaching people and understanding these issues. Because it's, it's them, it's that group who are going to go on and, and pass that down to filter it through their circles, through their teams, through their organisations. And... It's just you have to recognise that the way that we win this is grassroots. You start with the people who believe. You start with the people who want to understand and want to change. And then you build it up. And just one kind of nuance on that as well, which I think is quite interesting. That I learned very, very early on um, after my transition was actually that I am very, very likely to see some of the kind of stereotypes you were talking about Ashley so someone who's very alpha male someone who's very and I'm gonna I'm very likely to project um my own insecurity um onto them um so I remember one of my first training courses I ran um was for a, a lovely client of mine they're really um lovely people and um they run kind of like um housing association type organization and in my group um, was lined up three three um, chaps in a row. There was the head electrician, the head plumber, and the head kind of joiner or general contractor or something like that. And I kind of walked in the room thinking, oh, <laughs> <laughs> these three kind of roughy-tufty kind of <laughs> blokes, manly men, um, am I going to have this kind of major kind of issue here? Um, and I think probably at first they did look at me a bit like, wow, okay, that's we didn't expect that kind of... Um, you know this person to be our kind of our tutor um, for today. By the end of the day, they were um, saying, "Sarah, what's your view on this? How can you help?" And I think there's something there's something about that kind of education process definitely mm. 
But I think there's also something about actually they were really good guys to start with and actually I suspect didn't have any kind of issue. But because of what they look like, because of their, you know, they suffer, people suffer, you know, from that as much as anyone else does as well. And so I, I have to be really careful not to look at someone and make some assumptions about how they are going to treat me on that basis as well. And I think I've got to be, you know, we've all got to take responsibility mm. that for that too. I completely agree. I think after my transplant, the biggest thing I struggled to adjust to was I didn't look sick anymore. <laughs> and actually, no one looked at me strangely when I walked into a room. And that's a, it sounds like a really odd thing, but actually it really threw me off to start with. I wanted to kind of shout to everyone in a room and say like, I've had a transplant, by the way, like both of my lungs are someone else's. And, uh, and, and actually you do there is an adjustment to those kind of of levels, those kind yeah. of um, perceptions that you read on to other people mm. about what they're thinking about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something I have to really work very hard at because I think because you've had, I've had so long kind of living as, as in kind of my, my male guise, if you like, before I transitioned, that in my head, that's still what I look like. I, I struggle to have made that transition in my own mind. So I think as I walk down the street, as I go into meetings, I immediately assume that everyone realises that I'm trans and and also I, I assume that they adjust their behaviour accordingly. Um, actually, what I found more increasingly is that I don't think everyone does realise, actually, but also that um, a lot of people aren't bothered if they do realise anyway. And mm. so I'm kind of almost proactively compensating for something I don't need to proactively compensate for. We had a discussion, the three of us, after the the workshop that we did, where we were saying, actually, there's, there is nothing strange now. But, you know, we, or certainly I, met Sarah, and... That's who you are. That there is yeah. no kind of Sarah who used to be someone else or yeah. who has transitioned or anything else. Your story is really compelling, but you're still just Sarah. Yeah. And I think actually the same goes for a, a lot of people facing all of the issues that we're talking about. You know, a disabled person is still the person they're not the disability. I'm still Ollie. I'm not cystic fibrosis. Um, I've got friends in wheelchairs and they're still Kate, not mm. Kate in a wheelchair. And those kind of things are really important for leaders to recognise that you, you've got to look past those those issues. But actually, most people do look past those issues. As soon as you spend 10 minutes with someone, you realise, oh, hold on, this is an actual human being. No, couldn't agree more. Can I also just build on that yeah. really quickly? Uh, it's beholden on me, I think, at this point to say, actually, and that, because I, I totally agree with that, that actually one of the things that really does frustrate, I think, trans people is when people do want to know their previous name. So it's a question you get asked quite regularly. And actually, if someone asks me, generally speaking, I'll kind of dis look disapprovingly at them, but I'll still answer it. But actually, for some trans people, that they find that deeply offensive to be asked that question. So that is one of the ones that I would flag to people is something that people do find um, quite difficult to answer. Yeah, and that meant a lot to me because my daughter was one of the questions, and I said that is one thing you just don't ask. And she was inquisitive to say, but why? And as kids do, I said, but no, that you are to learn. That's something you just don't do. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, because I didn't know until you told me. Yeah. Not that I would have asked anyway, yeah. I don't think. But um, some people would and they're sort of interested yeah. in, in all of that thing. But it comes back to the day. It's not treating, as you rightly said, Ollie, it, it's, and it's not lumping people together. Because, again, you know, with my wife, you see that, you know, you can't lump all black women together. Yeah. First and foremost, she is a woman. She's independent. She just happens to be black. She's not the same as another black woman that she's standing next to. And that's the same for, for both of you. I know yeah. that. And I know the, the trans community, from what I've read and understood, and following on Twitter is brilliant because it leads you to other places, um, is that, you know, what the gay community in general were going through in the 80s and the 90s, trans individuals people can i use those terms transgender people. transgender people yeah. um are going through those which is you know are and, and i'm going 
going to be really candid here. Can I leave my kids? Are they safe? Um, could, should they be teaching? Should they, all of these things that are going on, and, and that that does rile me um, considerably. But I, I fully understand. And, but it again shows you we have not learned from our mistakes and our mindset from decades ago. But are you going through that? Am I right to think that from what I've understood from other people who I'm reading about? In yeah, I think that, um, and I really appreciate their efforts. There are a lot of trans people who have decided to engage in activism to try and help people to understand. Um, I think what's really interesting is that in picking up on things like Twitter, there are supporters out there, there are allies. Um, but as Ollie was saying earlier, I think the danger is with some of social media is that actually you're picking off the people who you'll never change their mind. Mm. Um, and I wonder sometimes whether trying to do so is a fruitless exercise. Mm. I think that it's, I think, um, I, I, think I, I hope that what people are trying to do is to say actually the the downside is if I don't challenge it, there are other people who may get caught up in believing the same thing and who actually may have been supportive but actually won't be now because there's no voice saying actually these people are saying the wrong thing. Mm. So I get completely why they're doing it. I admire them for, for kind of doing it. I guess I choose my activism in, in a different way. And mm. I, I, we've as we've talked before, I don't consider myself to be an expert on trans mm. issues. I only I have my story and I know my own views and my own experience. Um, but I would never um, speak for the whole trans community. But I genuinely appreciate those people who are sticking their neck above the parapet and actually are getting a lot of um, a lot of you know kind of grief a lot of kind of hassle online as a result of doing that and I'm just I'm very I admire them mm. um, and I but I, I think it's really to put yourself in the firing line in that type of situation is really a tough place to put yourself in at yeah. the moment in particular and it's not just the issues you're highlighting there are a whole range of other issues that are being thrown at trans people not not least and it so I think what's really interesting is that actually whilst we're kind of, you know, we know that social media is like that, actually, I think at the moment we're going through a period of time where the mainstream media is just as bad um, in terms of the the way that it highlights trans people disproportionately. You know, if you think about the number of trans people in the UK, for example, you know, it's a really, what, I think it's less than 1% of, um, of people. Um, about about two or three months ago, there was a, um, a day on when the Sunday Times published four anti-trans articles in one in one edition. Kind of, you think, in what other situation does a group of people who are less than one percent of the population justify that level of of kind of, att of attention, particularly negative attention? And actually, a lot of the, the the negative attention at the moment is actually being placed on um, on children who think they are, you know, they've got kind of they've got gender issue. There's a lot of kind of, I think, um, people um, really trying to push back on that and saying you can't be feeling like that. You're a child. You don't understand. We're encouraging children. You know, I go back to my story from earlier. I literally knew when I was six. I had absolutely no doubt. And it's I've never wavered from there. I'm 44 now. I've never wavered. I've never changed my mind. I've it's never it's never emerged that it was a phase. Um, if anything, actually not being able to. Um, come out because at the time in the seven nineteen seventies when I grew up early eighties, um, you just could not raise that kind of issue. And I think you know, I wonder sometimes how I'm. You know, I'm don't get me wrong. I'm pleased with how my uh, my life's turned out. I I I love my children to complete bits. Um, but you do sometimes wonder how would my life have been if someone actually at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten had taken that seriously and I'd been able to kind of talk to them about that where would my life have been now? Would I have had to go through those years of crippling dysphoria almost, really difficult dysphoria to kind of deal with? Um, or would actually I have been, you know, where would I, you know, I look at people now who, where people have been, you know, they, they, they're 100% transgender. Um, people have, they've gone through their lives, people have accepted them, they've helped them, supported them from a very early age. And actually how well adjusted and how, much easier things are for them medically and all that kind of stuff. It's um, you kind of think actually let's let's be kinder to people here. In terms of a whole community, you know, a kid at six years old, they might they, they know they're gay or they're not in the right body or they know. Yeah, but we we still haven't learned. We are learning because we are starting to see more 
more people accepting of the fact that, say, a seven or an eight-year-old might describe themselves as liking same-sex children and play-acting at same-sex relationships in the same way as we have seen previously children play-act in opposite-sex relationships. So there is an increasing acceptance. There's a much, much wider acceptance of um, the more, I suppose, traditional. There's a much wider acceptance of, say, homosexuality than there is of something like transgender issues, for example. But I think that's because homosexuality has been out in the world for a much longer period of time and people have campaigned on it and for it for a very long time. And you only have to look at pride marches happening around the world to see that there is this growth in acceptance. What we need is the, that acceptance to go beyond the LB or the LBG part of LBGTQI issues. That I believe those sorts of things will happen, but we have to keep plugging away at it. We have to keep telling the right stories. And I think the same is true for BAME issues, that I can't speak to those issues, but I think there is an increasing awareness of those issues. Whether or not they're being treated in the right way is a separate discussion, and it's not for me to say. But disability is another good example where there are now entirely accessible, entirely step-free tube stations in London, for example. And there are many tube stations that are not accessible in any way, whether that's uh, for wheelchair users, for blind or partially sighted people, for uh, deaf people. There is so much more to be done. But we have to start from the place we're at now and continue pushing forward and building. We are learning. It's just taking us too long. And I can't speak for kind of other, in my case, transgender people, but actually my experience is that you're absolutely right, Ollie, that I think people are, there is a lot of people moving in that in that direction. And actually that's the heartening thing, is that whilst the media in some cases and social media are being quite challenging places to be, the general population of the UK in particular, I can't speak for other countries, but in my the people I encounter within, within the UK, and I go to restaurants and theatres and travel on the tube and all sorts of other, other places, are, are actually either fine with it and they, they leave me alone or they're kind of, they're interested. And actually, I don't think I've, I've only ever once in the last two years had a really negative experience of someone being really difficult. The, the hundreds and probably thousands of other people I've met in that time have been fantastic. And so I think we can't, it's very tempting to kind of see um, social media and the media as a reflection of society and I'm not sure actually that's true I think there's a long way that people have come a lot of progress that's been made I think you're right in terms of trans people still a lot more progress than maybe in other areas but actually the progress is being made um, and I think you know thank goodness for the people who are doing the activist work to help that along brilliant thank you and it's just our as our final sort of closing piece then we are all Windsor alums um, we had a wonderful workshop. We, I, I totally agree. The momentum uh, with what we do with uh, the academy um, is all around diversity and inclusion, women in leadership, but also um, mental health and well-being at the end of the year. How do we galvanise all of this? What, what, what responsibility do we have? Uh, and what do you believe Windsor leadership what role do you feel Windsor Leadership can play, especially as the academy that can do these sorts of things? I think the role that we have to play in this is to take 
what we know, what we've learned, what we are continuing to learn, and to take that back to the workplace. Whether or not that's in a formalized way, whether it's doing training courses internally, whether that's through encouraging more people internally to tell their stories, whether it's through just asking people questions in in our teams or in our organizations. I think that's the first step. And then, of course, there are activist approaches. There are things that we can get involved with as, as individuals away from the workplace. But I think what Windsor Leadership can do is to continue doing what it's doing now, to get people in a room, to have those conversations, to tell really compelling stories about the lived experience of people, whether that's the disability and inclusion stuff, whether that's mental health and well-being, all of those issues are things where people have lived through them. And Windsor Leadership is, is perfectly positioned and perfectly capable, you've already proven, to get people in a room to discuss them. Yeah, it's really exciting that you are taking the opportunity to share your platform, I think, and, get, and allowing people to have a place where they can go and be educated to kind of understand. Um, I think when we went to the, when we did the diversity and inclusion um, day, I think um, you pulled together a group of people, both who were attending, who had views and insights themselves, with speakers who also had those insights. And actually that, creating that environment where actually no question is stupid, where you can literally kind of ask anything, that no one's going to be offended, um, actually will go a long way, I think, for a lot of people. But championing in that kind of way, you know, even what you said right at the start of the this of this podcast around um, you know the value and the importance that you see diversity and inclusion playing for leaders in the kind of few, in the the next stage of their agenda. Um, you know, everything you're doing at the moment is really kind of living that out, and I think that's just you know you're doing as you said, Ollie. What you're doing already is is I think the right things and is fantastic from my from my perspective. And that's one of them. And, and thank you. And thank you for being a part of that workshop and a part of today. And I could, I could go on for hours. This could become a series. Who knows? Um, but it's been um, thoroughly motivating for me. You know, even coming here today as per the tweet, which is re- genuinely excited to, to be in a room and, and do this sort of thing um, and really spread the word in a different medium, um, which we're doing today. So, so thank you. Fantastic. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening today as part of our Windsor Leadership Leadership Academy series of podcasts. If you would like more information, head to our webpage, windsorleadership.org.uk and head for the Leadership Academy uh, pages where you can find more information and various feeds to our other academy events. Thank you.